Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I had a professor in college who, after each lecture, he would spend the last several minutes of class addressing very specific questions and concerns of particular students. Personally, for me, as I typically didn't have many questions, this was my time to tune out. Though the content was still helpful and I should have been paying attention, I would choose to catch up on email or just let my mind drift. Now, what my professor did very well each lecture after this question time is he would say something like, okay, now I want everybody's attention. I want everybody's attention. When he would do that, he would rally the class, and he would then share an important closing thought that was deeply relevant for every student in the room. Though I should have been paying attention the whole time, just that simple call for attention uh, always reined me back in. It reined my focus back in. Brothers and sisters, I trust you, unlike me in my college days, have been paying attention to the last several sermons in 1 Peter even though the apostle has been addressing very specific groups, groups that you might not belong to, slaves, masters, employers, you might not be a wife, you might, might not be a husband. Yet Peter makes it very clear at the beginning of our text this week that he wants the undivided attention of every one of his readers. So with this in mind, you read with me 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may attain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we ask now earnestly for the blessing of the preaching of your word, would you open up truths unknown to us? Father, would this message, your word, would it exalt Christ? Would it humble sinners? And Lord, may it promote holiness of life to everyone here. We ask this in the faithful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this text reminds us uh, in 1 Peter 3, but in the series of uh, extremely practical exhortations for Peter's readers, all of them, all these exhortations, stem from the penetrating reality that Christians, they belong to a royal priesthood. They belong to a holy nation, a new people which positions them in this life as sojourners and exiles. And in many ways, this is the main message of Peter's epistle, flowing out of this This present and and temporary status as exiles, believers are to be indelibly marked by certain character and conduct. And to this point, if you remember from previous messages, probably the the hinge verse is 
1 Peter 2, verse 11. You can look back at that if you want, or you could just listen to me. And that's where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which weigh war against your soul. What is Peter saying there? He's saying, because the gospel has made you sojourners and exiles, conduct yourselves accordingly. Another way of saying this would be the indicative statements and truths and facts of the gospels, namely that, that the saints have been purchased by the blood of Christ, that they've been adopted by the Father, and that they have been made heirs of a glory inheritance. These, in, these indicatives, they form the imperatives, the commands of the Christian life. We obey commands because of the gospel. We progress in holiness because of the gospel. We avoid sin because of the gospel. And we do good. We seek to be good because of the gospel. So Peter, he's addressed citizens and the importance of submitting to the government. He's addressed slaves and workers and their submission to employers and, and masters. He's addressed wives and husbands and their conduct towards one another to the point the text this week addresses everyone, all of you, all of those in the church in their conduct with others, particularly those within the church. What's the main idea of this text? What's the main idea of this sermon? The main idea of this sermon, this text, is born-again Christians are called to obedience with the hope of blessing. Born-again Christians Saints, believers, the people of God, you, brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Church, we are called to obedience with the hope of blessing. The Christian's conformity to the image of Christ, which we know as good Reformed people is a work of Christ, it is a means unto which he or she makes it to heaven. With heaven as an inheritance, a godly life, it's not the grounds for the inheritance, Otherwise, the word inheritance wouldn't make much sense. You don't earn an inheritance. You are an heir. A godly life is not the grounds for the inheritance, but it is evidence that we are heirs. Righteousness, though incomplete and imperfect, imperfect always saving power of God. A sincere and godly life always accompanies repentance and faith. Because believers have been called to godliness, this is their calling they are to live up to that calling. They are to live up to that indicative that is true of their life. That's why Peter, he'll write elsewhere in his second epistle, he'll say, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You have a calling, Christian? You gotta live up to that calling. That's why Paul will also say in Ephesians, he'll say, walk, walk, that is to display, that is to conduct oneself or to behave in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's why Paul prayed elsewhere for saints that God may make you worthy of his calling to fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I pray that often for you, brothers and sisters. I hope you pray that for your brothers and sisters here at Emmanuel, that we would live worthy of the calling to which we've been called. The saving power of God is always made manifest in obedience and ongoing sanctification. And the pursuit of such, of such sanctification is a means unto which believers 
are blessed. So in the time remaining, I have separated this text with three headings. The first is the call to obedience. The second is the incentives to obedience. And the third is the proof of the incentives. If those headings don't make sense to you now, hopefully they will by the end of the day. But the first heading, the call to obedience. Where am I getting those, that phrase from? Where am I getting that heading from? Well, friends, I'm getting that from verse 9. If you look at verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. You see that very important statement. For to this you were called. What is the this Peter refers to? To what are Christians called? Well, Peter makes plain here and and several places in his epistle that believers are called to a very specific way of life. They are to be marked by certain character and certain conduct. And when I use those words character and conduct, I, I use those because it describes what is going on internally, internally in the life of the believer and outwardly in behavior. See, verse 8, which we're about to consider, refers to the internal feelings of the heart and orientation of the will. While verse 9, in falling, speaks more of outward behavior. So as we consider this heading of, of a call to obedience, we're going to consider first internal character and then outward behavior. So let's consider first internal character. Looking at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's evident that Peter's commands, they are by no means surface level. Rather, the apostle Peter, he expects the truth of the gospel to sink into the lowest steps of the heart. Yet what I find striking, I find absolutely spellbounding about these descriptors, this internal character that Peter describes, is that all of these traits are relational. All of these traits are relational. We might expect that when Peter takes aim at heart matters, he might think about cultivating personal piety or one's relationship vertically with God, but that's not his focus. Rather, he is focused on relationships in the church. He wants to address the believer's posture towards Christian community. Notice how others-oriented these character traits are. Unity of mind. That's not like being yourself having one mind. No, no, that's unity of mind with your brothers and sisters. Sympathy. Not sympathy for self. That's sympathy for others. Brotherly love. A tender heart. A humble mind. Brothers and sisters, these commands, they cannot be obeyed outside of Christian community. They cannot be expressed outside of the church. Robinson Crusoe could not obey 1 Peter 3, verse 8. He was a man on an island. He couldn't express this character. You need people. You need people together. You need eyeballs on eyeballs. You need faces that are facing each other. You need the church. You need your family. 
You need the people of God. You need meaningful spiritual fellowship with your actual brothers and sisters in Christ. What does Peter call for first? He calls for unity of mind. What does he mean? Well, this certainly is not uniformity. The idea is obviously not that every Christian needs to uh, agree on every single thing or absolutely everything. That's not what Peter is saying. Rather, Peter is saying and referring to what Paul would refer to as the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we know, friends, such oneness is built upon the gospel. The Spirit has united believers, and as we say at wedding, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Peter, like Paul, was aware. He was aware that in Christ, God had objectively united a people for his glory. And Peter, like Paul, understood that even though this unity was objective, it must be subjective, subjectively realized. It must be borne out in our experience, in our encounters, in our life. It must be lived out. It must be expressed, this unity, it must be felt. And it must be tenaciously guarded. If you're a husband or a wife, you know what it's like to be one with your spouse. You know what it's like to experience that unity, that that sense of oneness with your wife or oneness with your husband. And I hope you know that the Bible teaches that you are in actuality one with your wife. You're one flesh. So there's an objective truth to that. But if you've been married for any length of time, you would know that unity can be threatened. That sense of unity can be destroyed, it can be damaged, it can be hurt. You need, you need, you know that that unity is often breached, and you know that if you have that unity, God be praised, if you have that unity, it must be guarded, and it must be thoroughly and judiciously maintained. Emmanuel, brothers and sisters, it's the same in our life together. It's the same in our life together. We know what it's like to have unity in Christ. We know this. We know what it's like to have unity challenge. My friend, it is a moral certainty that any mingling of sinners, even redeemed sinners, will inevitably produce relational conflict. It is a moral certainty. It is an absolute inevitability that any mingling of sinners, people like us, There will eventually be relational conflict. I guarantee you will be offended. You will offend others. You will be rubbed the wrong way. You will be rubbed the the wrong way by others. You will be let down by your pastors. And you will let your pastors down. And you will be failed. And you will fail others. But Emmanuel Church, what will we do next? What will we do next when our unity is challenged? We will love one another. We will confess our wrongs to one another. We will forgive one another. And we will pursue that which is objectively true of us. And that is our unity. And we will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will cover a multitude of wrongs and we will worship Jesus together because we are one. 
And what God has joined together, let no man separate. We should eagerly maintain this unity. I have a friend who uh, works out a ton. He hits the gym every morning at 5 a.m. And uh, he's the picture of human fitness. He's as physically fit as a human being I think is capable of being. And as I do when I have friends that work out a ton, I ask them a very simple question. Why? Why do you work out so much? Why is this so important to you? Why is this such a priority? And more, th more than this, to what end? What's the end game? You're already so physically fit. You already have attained your goals physically. Why do you incessantly keep at it? Why do you wake up every morning and keep going to the gym? Well, it's a snarky question. You, you know that. But my friend requ uh, responded quite calmly and said, well, well Zach, uh, I'm in maintenance mode. I'm in maintenance mode. Yes, I've already have attained my goals physically, but I know that if I don't stay at the gym, if I don't flex these muscles and make it my regular habit to hit the gym every day in the morning at 5 a.m., my muscles are going to atrophy, and I'm going to lose that which I fought so hard to attain. Well, friends, it's similar with our unity. It's similar with our unity. We are objectively one. And listen, I believe God's Spirit has so been among us God's Spirit has so blessed Emmanuel Church. We have attained fantastic levels of unity in this church. But it must be guarded. It must be eagerly maintained. It must be tenaciously kept and held onto. Brothers and sisters, it is incumbent on each of us to eagerly, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Strive for it. Guard it. Peter calls for unity of mind. Next, he says to have sympathy. To have sympathy or to be sympathetic. The idea here is to share the same feelings. This means that should our brothers and sisters be suffering or should they be rejoicing, we ought to know how to enter into their emotions. We ought to know how to enter into their feelings. We must be able to bear their burdens. You can imagine what that requires. You can imagine the, the, the work that needs to be put in for the standard of sympathy. This means that Christians need to be students of facial expressions, of tones of voice, of smiles and sighs and signals. They need to know how to interpret nonverbal cues. Christians must not only intimately understand others, but they must endeavor to enter into their experience. There's a common phrase thrown around these days called emotional intelligence. If you work for a corporation, you've, you've probably have heard this phrase, emotional intelligence. It's often referred to as EQ, and it's compared and contrasted to IQ. You know what IQ is. It's your, it's your intelligence that God gives you. And uh, small wonder, funny thing, IQ, what people will tell us is it tends to be relatively static. It doesn't change much over the lifetime. So if you're an adult and you have a certain IQ, this is one of the reasons I'll never take an IQ test. 
it's, it's, it, sends, it tends to stay the same. You don't increase your IQ or decline in your IQ, or so psychologists and HR departments tell us. You get what you get from God, and you don't pitch a fit. You're only as smart as you ever will be. Now, EQ, though, it's entirely different. You can grow in emotional intelligence, and your emotional intelligence can also decline. You can grow in, in your interpretation and your understanding of others' emotions. You can grow in how you express your emotions. And experts will say, experts will say that developing a high EQ is extremely important in your career and personal development. And they'll show surveys and show you how all the best CEOs, they all have taken the test and they all have a very high EQ. Well, friend, I wish you all the success in the world, in your life, and in your career. But that's not Peter's priority. That is not Peter's priority. The apostle's priority is that you cultivate sympathy in your heart because to this you have been called. To be a Christian is to show sympathy. It is a calling of sympathy. It's not just for Navy SEAL Christians. It's not just for, for super Christian. No, it is a core competency to following Christ. <laughs> and more than this, brothers and sisters, we need you to be sympathetic. We need your sympathy. Your family needs you. I need you. We need to be able to enter into each other's joy and suffering. We need to know how to come alongside each other with sympathy, with compassion. That friend whose son is rebelling from the church. That couple who's miscarried a child. That mom who's struggling with young needy children and a spiritually immature husband. That brother struggling with sexual sin. That husband who's impatient with his wife. That father who lost his job. That Christian who struggles to read and to understand his Bible. They need your sympathy. We need your sympathy. Just as the Lord's posture, his present posture towards us as heavenly high priest is that of tender compassion, that of tender sympathy, we are to follow in kind. Peter calls for sympathy. Next, he calls for brotherly love. I don't need to say much here other than dressing uh, the family of God. He's addressing the community of faith. He's addressing the church. You're not, you're in some ways, but you're, he, the idea is that you don't have brotherly love with a lost person. You have brotherly love with the people who've been bought by the blood of Christ. Christians are to possess brotherly love for their fellow saints. And we say this all the time here at Emmanuel. God's people, they're not like a family. They truly are a family. It's written on every page of Scripture. The communion of saints is our heavenly kinfolk. Therefore, therefore, our affections for our brothers and sisters in Christ should swell. And it should swell with even greater intensity, with even greater love and greater sincerity than that of our own flesh and blood. Christian, there is a bond you share with Christians that is orders of magnitude deeper than what you share with non-Christian flesh and blood. Do you know this? 
The love you share with Christians should intensely outshine any fealty you have for your country. And listen, I hope you have the closest relationship with your physical family. I long to have the closest relationship with my wife and my son. My son, whether or not he comes to know the Lord. And listen, I hope you have a deep and abounding love for this country. But I hope those loves, I hope they pale in your commitment to Christ. And your fealty and your devotion and your affection and your joy and your love in him. And to his gospel through which we have been adopted into the family of God. Surely, God's family should engender a greater love than that of flesh and blood. Christian, does your heart beat for your brothers and sisters? How deep is your love for the church? And you might be thinking, Zach, how how on earth? How on earth can I actually love my spiritual family, the way I love my physical family. That's so unnatural. How could I even think to love my spiritual family perhaps more than my physical family? That's so unnatural. Friend, who said there was anything natural about the Christian life? The masters. What's natural about righteous people submitting to wicked governments? There's nothing natural about it. What's natural about wives submitting to wayward husbands, husbands that know not God? What's natural about that? What's natural about a husband being patient and long-suffering with his wife? There's nothing natural about it. What's natural about any of the things we're doing here today? Opening up an ancient text, trying to glean some sort of meaning from it, singing songs to God and to each other, There's nothing natural about it, except this is our calling. It is what the people of God have been called to. I'm called to be part of a royal priesthood. I am called to be a part of a holy nation, a chosen race. I've been bought by the blood of Christ, and I'm a living stone, and I'm going to gather with the other living stones, and I'm going to form a habitation of praise to the Almighty God. There's nothing natural about it, brothers and sisters. It takes a supernatural work of God. We are going to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's nothing natural. It's the power of God. It's the power of God that changes and saves sinners. And it's the power of God, friends, that makes people love each other. Part of my role here at Emmanuel is I I get to read the testimonies first that our new members and, and baptismal candidates send in. And uh, by God's grace, next Easter, Easter, we're having, what, five baptisms? And um, by God's grace, it's, it's young people. It's teenagers. And I can remember what it was like to be a teenager with a, with a young faith. I was saved with, when I was 10 years old, and I struggled deeply with assurance for three years. I didn't know, how could I know that God actually did a work in my life? Uh, I, I wish I was saved from an obvious uh, way of, of, of worldliness and, and, and obvious sin. The reality is, when you're 10 years old, it's not like you quit dealing drugs on the playground. So, so it's hard to discern, hey, how do I know my life has been changed? How do I know that the spirit of the Almighty God has done a work? Well, in my case, 
how I'm sure it is for many of these young people getting baptized, is there was an unexplainable love for 80-year-old men and women in my church that I had nothing in common. And I couldn't explain that love for a second save for God's work in my life. Brotherly love is what Peter calls us to. How do we know God is among us if we love each other? Emmanuel, if these traits sound impossible, it's because you're paying attention. It took the Son of God to die for us that we might live to righteousness. Next, Peter calls for a tender heart. The idea here is that of compassion. Once more, these are, we should remember these are adjectives that ought to describe the interiority of our lives. In other words, Peter is urging us to pursue inward character. To the very core of our being, we must be tender, we must be gentle, we must be compassionate. And lastly, in inward character, Peter calls for a humble mind. Believers can't merely demonstrate humility by placing others ahead of themselves. But more than this, they must actually endeavor to internally esteem others as greater than themselves. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to treat somebody like you want to be treated. It's not, another thing to treat somebody like, like they're Im more, important than, more important than you. It's another thing entirely to actually esteem them as such. This is why Paul in Philippians 2, he says, in humility, count others. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. The idea is actual estimation, actual appraisal of value of that person. They're more valuable than me. That is what it means to have a humble mind. Do you see how radical this is? The Christian mind appraises others higher. The Christian considers others greater. The Christian mind esteems others as more significant. And I just think, friends, as, as Christians in the 21st century, we can, be, we can be so accustomed to humble speak. We can be so accustomed to the, the concept of humility that we can forget how entirely radical this is. This would have been completely counterintuitive to Peter's readers. I want to be humble? Ugh, no. Do I want to be meek? No. I want to be great. Remember the Lord's discourse with his disciples where he says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of mine, a kingdom of heaven. Peter calls us to cultivate a humble mind. This is the inward called. I need to move quickly to outward conduct. Outward conduct Peter moves from the inward character in verse 8 to outward conduct in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter says not giving, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. What does he mean by reviling there? Well, the word for it's that of slander. It's that of insults. It's that of, of verbal abuse. And I think it's worth pausing to think about that. Peter's addressing the community of faith. He's addressing the people of God. Even as Peter addresses these elect exiles, 
tells, Peter expects Christians to hurt one another. If you've had the experience in this church or any other church of your brother or sister in Christ offending you or hurting you with your words, please know your experience is not beyond the pale or expectation of the New Testament writers. They expected God's people to grieve one another. They expected them to wound one another with words. They expected them to offend one another. They expected them even to insult one another, yet... Yet, what does Peter promote? Instead of any response in kind, Peter promotes blessing. On the contrary, bless. The word is eulogio. Eulogio, it it's, means to praise, it means to extol, it means to speak well of. And it's actually where we get our English word eulogy. If you've been to a funeral, you, you, you've heard a eulogy. And actually, Though our English word eulogy isn't the same meaning as eulogio, actually a helpful illustration of what Peter's getting at here. If you've been at a funeral, at least in America, it's common that you will not hear a crossword about the deceased. No matter who they are, you can go to the criminal of a convicted, violent criminal and not hear one bad word about them. You won't hear that John was a womanizer. You'll hear that John had such a big heart. You won't hear that John abandoned his family. You'll hear that John had a free spirit. And you won't hear that John, uh, he gambled away the family fortune down at the horse track. You'll hear that John always had a love for animals. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't want to condone lying at funerals, but I am saying I am saying, brothers and sisters, we should apply the same instinct in our daily encounters. We must nurture the instinct to bless others always, but especially those who sin against us. Especially those who speak evil against us. Especially those who sin against us or slander us. My, uh, my lexicon, it defines this word eulogio, this word to bless, as to give, it says to give a blessing is to act kindly and to impart a blessing or impart benefits to the one being blessed. You think of that sister who said such nasty things about you that you never heard from her mouth but you heard from somebody else's mouth. What are you to do? You to impart benefits, kind things, blessings with your words. Apostle Peter, this is the outward conduct that is to flow from the inward character of the saints. This is the call to obedience. Before I move on to the next heading, I, I just want to pause for a couple very important applications. First, Christian, consider your relationship to the church. Consider your relationship to the church. I fear that there are some here though not many, but some nonetheless, that you have little opportunity for applying this text. You have little opportunity for applying this text because the church is such a small part of your life. Friend, I'm concerned for you. I really am. I'm concerned for you. You can't just conveniently add the church onto your life. It's not like that. 
It's an all or nothing, it's an all or nothing thing. You got to show up. And you know what? When you show up, you got to show up. You can't just walk through these doors, hear a good sermon, and then leave. You're out of here. You got to be bought in. This isn't McDonald's. This is a full-on contact sport, the church. Church membership, church life, being a part of your brothers and sisters in a covenant community, it is an all-or-nothing experience. And listen, I am aware that there's this thing called a pandemic, and many of us had had to stay home for legitimate reasons. I totally understand that, but I am saying now, as we emerge from this season, let us all consider our relationship to the church. I'm not talking about the church broadly. I'm not talking about the church as an orientation. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about Emmanuel. As we emerge from this season, let us pledge ourselves to one another. Let us pledge ourselves to one another that we're going to walk side by side, arm by arm, and we're going to help each other get to heaven because this is our calling. We're going to help each other make it there. and We're going to grow ever more into Christ because to this we have been called. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. As I look down at this text, all I have to do to see living application is look up. All I have to do is look into your eyes and look at your faces because so many of you are so faithful. You're so faithful. You're faithful to express unity. You're faithful to show sympathy and compassion. You're so faithful to maintain unity. You're so faithful to bless. There are some of you I think are biologically incapable of reviling. Like you just can't do it. You just don't go there. And some of you I know so well, I've never heard say one cross word about another saint. Even ones you don't even know. I pray that God will increase your number at Emmanuel Church. Brothers and sisters, let us consider our relationship to the church. But secondly... Christian, consider your need for Christ. Consider your need for the gospel. Perhaps you've read verses 8 and 9, and you feel like I did studying this text this week. That is, painfully aware of how you fall short. Painfully, like piercingly aware of the ways you fall short of the standard of these commands. Far from unity, I can be so divisive. Far from sympathetic, I can be so harsh. Far from humble, I'm galaxies away from that. I could be so full of self. And far from blessing, I can so easily destroy others with my words. Brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. Remember who Christ is. Remember that he died on the cross in order that we would live to righteousness. Look to Christ. And friend, remember who it is who's writing this letter. Peter knew a thing or two about retaliation. Peter knew a thing or two about harshness. Peter knew a thing or two about returning evil for evil. It was Peter who, when threatened in the presence of the Lord, cut another man's ear off. And as Peter returned that evil for evil, he saw his his master model something entirely different. For in that same hour, Jesus would endure the cross. And Jesus would bear the wrath for sinners where he would cry out, those sinners who reviled him, 
Those sinners who yelled crucify him, those, sin- those sinners who slurred and laid insults at him, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not repaying evil for evil. Not reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is Peter's call to obedience. Let's consider next, and much more briefly, the incentives for obedience. Still in verse 9, Peter offers two incentives for obedience. He says, for to this you were called, this is the end of verse 9, he says, for to this you were called, that you... We see here Peter, he presents two incentives. The first is that of calling, and we spent a lot of time talking about this today. We've already opened this up. The simple point is that Christians are called by God so that they are changed unto the end that they do good. Do you know this? Christian, you've been saved by the grace of God, but it's not like you've just been saved because God wanted to save you. Thankfully, he has. But there's so much more to the Christian life. Rather, he redeems his people and changes them for the purpose that they perform good works. The New Testament's charge to saints is quite literally and quite fundamentally become who you are. Scripture's refrain is that because you have been adopted by the Father, bought by the blood of the Son, and changed by the Holy Spirit, start acting like it. Christian, you have been called to do good, so get busy doing good. This is your calling. This is the first incentive, the first motivation that Peter lays out for obedience. But second, Peter offers another motive, and that for good works is blessing. He says that you may obtain a blessing, or probably better uh, interpreted, that you may inherit a blessing. Bless that you may obtain a blessing. And it's here where I think a lot of us get very uncomfortable. I mean, I'm a faith alone, grace alone, Nothing but the blood of Jesus alone, Christian. What is Peter talking about here when he says that you may obtain a blessing? And how is that to be an incentive to obedience? Is Peter here promoting some sort of works-based religion of merit? Is Peter here laying out some sort of program for works righteousness? Well, if by merit you mean that Christians are just before a holy God on the basis of their good works, or that good character and works pay the price for our sins, then I would say absolutely not. That is clearly not what Peter means, and I can go to five or six proof texts within First Peter itself. That's not what Peter is saying. But if by merit you mean that God imparts blessing and offers certain benefits good works that he calls them to, and that such benefits and blessings are to incentivize obedience, then I would answer with a resounding yes. Brothers and sisters, it is okay to obey God because you want to be blessed by God. There's nothing contrary about that and the gospel. It is okay to obey God because you want your prayers to be heard. It is okay to obey God because you want to make it to heaven. This is not inconsistent with the gospel. This is not inconsistent with the fact that it was Christ who bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's not inconsistent with that. 
This is not inconsistent with the fact that the saints, that they are preserved by God. That's absolutely true. Yet you see, it's not inconsistent because our perseverance and our obedience, it is a means unto the end that we make it to the end. Do you see that? The writers of the New Testament are constantly laying out incentives to the people for their obedience. Peter does this. Paul does this. The Lord Jesus does this. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? The first words out of Jesus' mouth. He says, blessed. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The implication is, I want to inherit the earth. I want that. I don't want to perish. I, I ought to reconsider this meekness stuff. I'm going to listen to the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Christian, don't you want to be satisfied? Then you've got to be hungering and thirsting for the right thing. You've got to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Then, oh, and only then will you be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I better be merciful. Because I need, I need mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Christian, do you want to see God? And brother, sister, you must pursue purity. Purity of heart. Don't you see what Peter is doing? He's saying, Christian, do you want to obtain the blessing? Don't you want to obtain a blessing from God? Then love. Love. Love your brothers and sisters. Don't return evil for evil. Don't revile, but bless. And to do so with a certain hope that you will be blessed by God. This is the incentive for obedience. And this brings me right to the third heading, and that is Peter's proof for the incentives. So Peter, he, third heading, proof for incentives. Peter, the good Bible teacher that he is, he backs up what he's saying with Scripture. He quotes verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 3, our quote from Psalm 34. He says, for, who, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says, look, this isn't new what I'm telling you. Obedience with the inheritance or blessing in view as an incentive to that obedience is nothing new. This sanctified self-interest is a hallmark of the Christian faith. Peter is saying, don't you love life? Don't you want to see good days? Don't you want a blessing? Don't you want the eyes of the Lord upon you? Don't you want his ears open to your requests? And pursue peace. Then love your brothers and sisters. Put on sympathy. Seek good things. Turn away from evil. And you shall obtain the blessing. In closing, I want to highlight, highlight two things from verse 12. It's... it's Peter's closing thought there, or his closing quote there, three, four. He, he uh, two things, first a word of comfort, and second a sober warning. So Peter, he, he's quoting the Psalms, and 
like Psalm 34, or like many of the Psalms, Psalm 34 presents a, a highly binary, no gray, black and white, highly binary, yet correct view of the word, world. Uh, the theologian Robert Plant, he rightly said, there are two paths you can go down, and there's still time to change the road you're on. There are two paths. There are two ways to live. There's the path of righteousness and the path of the wicked. And the entire Bible presents the righteous as those who prosper. They are the people who God is for. The righteous are the one whom God's countenance shines. That great Psalm 67, that missionary psalm, Lord, may the light of your countenance shine upon us. That's the idea. It shines upon the righteous. But I think we need to remember who Peter is writing to as he offers this word of comfort and offers this sober warning. What is Peter trying to do? Well, Peter has made quite plain that he is writing to elect exiles. He's writing to sojourners. And he's writing to those who are they're beginning to feel the heat and the intensity of persecution. The devil is tightening the noose. I don't think he's quoting Psalm 34 to scare his readers. He's not quoting Psalm 34 and verse 12 to, to frighten his readers. He knows these believers have been born again. They've been saved according to the great mercy of God. And he knows that they have been called to an inheritance. And he knows that they're not perfect. Otherwise, there'd be no need for any of the commands of 1 Peter. You think about that. The Bible doesn't imagine that saints will be perfect. Otherwise, there'd be no point for any of the commands in the New Testament. So Peter knows the people he's writing to, Christians, elect exiles, he knows that they're not perfect. Hence, Peter wants to summon them and us to obedience, yet to do so with full knowledge that the eyes of the Lord are upon us. The eyes of the Lord are upon us, and his ears are open to our prayers. His eyes are upon us, eyes of care, eyes of compassion, eyes of tenderness. His ears are open, ears eager to listen, to hear our requests, and to meet our needs. Peter means this as a word of hope. This is a word of comfort. This is a word of consolation. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is for us. He is for us, and he is eager to answer us with steadfast love and faithfulness. Christian, do you sense the Lord's support as you strive to obey? As you strive? Do you sense the support from the Lord that even though imperfectly you, you turn away from sin? When you turn away from evil and repent, do you discern a warm embrace from the Lord? Or reluctant, arm's length, we'll see how this goes, acceptance. Brother, if you turn away from evil, the Lord's eyes are upon you. They're upon you. Not to glare at you with hostility, but to show fatherly care for you. Sister, if you seek peace, the Lord's ears are open to you, and they're ready to meet every need of yours in Christ. To believers, this is a hope of blessing, and it is meant to comfort us. But even with this word of comfort, there's a word of warning. There's a sober word of warning. 
The last thing Peter says there is that the face of the Lord is against the He'll say elsewhere that the Lord opposes the proud. These are the unrepentant. These are those who choose sin and make it their practice to defy God. I'm afraid this may describe some of you in this room today. God's word means nothing to you. His commands, his will has no bearing on your life. And my friend, I need to tell you. I'm concerned for you. Hmm? To have the eyes of the Lord blind to you. Can't see or he's indifferent to your life and what you're doing. It's one thing to have the ears of the Lord close off to you and your prayers can't get to him. That's terrible in its own right. But it's another thing entirely worse to have the face of the Lord against you. The face of the Lord against you. To have the Lord's opposition pointed at you. To have the full fury of God's wrath kindled and ready to fire upon you. For those of you who do not trust in Christ, that's what awaits you. The Lord is against you. And listen, these sweet promises of consolation, these sweet promises of comfort that the Lord's eyes are upon us, they're not on you. Rather, His wrath stands against you. My friend, if this is you, I urge you to repent. It doesn't have to go that way. The Lord Jesus is ready. He's eager, and he invites you to come to him. He invites you to come to him in faith. He says, my burden is, my burden is light. If you're heavy laden, lay it on me. I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. I'm ready to receive you. If you just repent, if you just lay hold of me in faith, if you just love me, if you lay hold of me as your own, that's a promise to everyone in this room. It is a gospel worthy of all acceptation. Would you receive it? Do you want to know how to become a Christian? Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to pay the price for your sins and you will be saved and he will change you and you can put on all the inward character and the behavior and the virtue of this text and you will know and you will sleep soundly at night as I did when I was 13 years old, assured, knowing that the eyes of the Lord are upon me and his ears are open to my prayer. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the promises of this text. Lord, we thank you for the clear ethics and virtue and character called for. Lord, help us to discern our calling. And Lord, help us to be relational. Help us to help one another into the kingdom of God, into heaven, Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move now that it would apply your word. Lord, that it would convict of sin, that it would lead to the intended aim, that it would lead us to repentance, and Lord, one degree of glory to another. Lord, help us now 
as we worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.